How is it possible that it's already August? We hope you are enjoying your summer. Back by popular demand is our AirPods Pro giveaway. Members who successfully answer our bonus content quiz will be entered for a chance to win a pair of AirPods Pro. To participate, you must have access to the bonus sections of the podcasts, which you get by becoming a member. Members also receive an ad-free listening experience, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of August, you'll receive 50% off the normal membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code bonus content, one word, at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code bonus content. Thank you for your support. I'm Zoe Weinberg, and this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we're joined by Joey Aurora, a partner at The Outpost, where he specializes in helping companies secure government contracts in the defense industry. Previously, Joey was at the DOD's Platform One, and he's also a co-founder of AFWorks and an Air Force veteran. Joey, welcome to the show. Hi, Zoe. Welcome. Uh, Thanks for having me. Really glad to be here with you and Natalia. Joey, you've worked in public, public service in different capacities throughout your career, beginning with the Air Force. I believe you originally started in ROTC in college. What originally drew you to military service and the Air Force in particular? Yeah, uh, so I grew up in Denver, Colorado, and the roar of airplanes flying overhead always captivated me as a child, and specifically the roar of jet engines. And I think that was one of the first things that drew me to being interested in the Air Force. And then getting the opportunity to do Army JROTC, Civil Air Patrol, leading into college, I was like, I want to do the Air Force. I want to understand what it means to serve so I can better help protect and build the freedoms that we have as a nation. And so it started off with that love of the roar of engines overhead and really blossomed into uh, wanting to understand what it means to protect our democracy. And so did ROTC in college and uh, got to join up as a second lieutenant in the Air Force. And Joey, I'm just curious, as someone who has had a lot of friends in ROTC and as a part of the military, but obviously have never been there myself, is it quite common that people actually dedicate the rest of their careers in that space? Like, I think that so often we think, okay, every single step of the way we are defined by our experiences. But I'm curious, maybe you compared to maybe others within your class, like, how has this really shaped and defined your careers? Like, does everyone sort of follow in doing something similar to where they started in the Air Force or ROTC? Yeah. uh, Actually, when I I think that's a great question. When I got started in the Air Force, uh, I was actually an airfield operations officer. Uh, so I was in charge of the air traffic control, the radar tower side of the house, and the actual runway and uh, taxiways themselves. It's like, how do you make sure that the airport is good for uh, planes taking off? And I got to do that job at Cannon Air Force Base in New Mexico, so at Air Force Special Operations Command. And then got to do that job at Barksdale and got the opportunity to deploy and do that job downrange. Um, 
that job for me was not something I was initially passionate about. I was super passionate about serving and being in our Air Force, uh, but the job didn't challenge me in the ways that I um, that I deeply enjoyed. Um, and though through that time at Canon, I really got to learn what it means to solve problems for with a yes mindset. So how do you solve for yes? And how do you get shit done? Right? Our focus is on getting stuff done, making it happen. And that mindset at Air Force Special Operations Command really carried throughout the rest of my career. And when I got to go to Barksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana, the mission set was a lot simpler. Global Strike Command's mission at Barksdale is the B-52s. It's one aircraft type, one uh, airport runway. And they weren't, there weren't nine different airframes, a billion dollars of construction being built was happening at Cannon. So my job became a lot simpler and also allowed me some of the flexibility to explore what I was passionate about in being an entrepreneur, starting a couple of businesses, getting involved in the local startup ecosystem. And that really blossomed into, hey, there was an opportunity to deploy. I wanted to take that chance to go serve my nation and do that because I spent the last four years doing this job stateside. I wanted to go do it downrange. And so in that opportunity to deploy is actually sort of the birth story of where I got involved with AFWorks. Um, and my passion for national security, capital, and startups really got to blend together. And the next, the second half of my Air Force career had, was really defined by the opportunity to work on helping drive a different direction for the Air Force and work on building, like building pathways for funding to get to those companies. And that had nothing to do with the Air Force career that was assigned to me. It was a blend of my passions and the Air Force saying, hey, actually, you, they actually said you can't go do that. And so I actually left active duty um, post my deployment and joined the reserves full time so that I could build AFWorks with my friends. And it was only because I got to do that, that uh, my time in the Air Force really got to um, be the joy that it was. So let's dig in a little bit there. You know, for, for folks who aren't familiar with AFWorks, you know, what is it? You know, it, it's the Air Force Innovation Program, but like, what does that mean? And also what, um, you know, what sort of prompted or inspired this, you know, initiative within the Air Force? Was there the sense that the Air Force had reached some sort of crossroads where there needed to be a real doubling down, doubling, doubling down on, um, on innovation? Was there some sort of like external factors that, that motivated the birth of this program? Can you tell us a little bit about how that came to be? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, as part of the Air Force, I think a lot of us have felt and seen that the way that we try to solve problems is very top down driven and it's super bureaucratic. And there were a lot of people all around the Air Force who were frustrated with the inability to solve the problems that they saw in front of them. And I think there was a, a really big turning point with a lot of different pieces and organizations coming together saying, how do we shift the culture of the Air Force back to our roots, where the, the Air Force was born out of innovation happening in the Army Air Corps, right? and believing that, hey, we can use aircraft to 
have strategic effects. And that was the birth of our Air Force less than 100 years ago. And we wanted to see how do we drive that culture back into the day-to-day mindset of our airmen. And the Air Force was really born in how do you get capabilities to the warfighter faster and build a pathway for airmen to solve the problems that they face on a day-to-day basis. And so there were people like, at the time, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Hardin, uh, Steve, Austin, Chris, Tony, who were all working on projects in their own little spheres. And uh, all of us got together and General Wilson saw that, hey, there was an opportunity to really put all of the efforts into one uh, direction. And uh, Dave Harden really orchestrated, hey, let's pull all these people that are doing individual things. Let's give them this top cover in the name of AFWorks and see what can we do to help shift the direction of where the Air Force is headed. And it was built off of the momentum that the Defense Innovation Unit had that Softworks had created. And we got uh, to be in a really lucky time period where I got to work with an amazing group of peers and work within an organization that said, hey, we're going to provide you the top cover to go try things and let's see what sticks in enabling our warfighters and what tools or programs can you bring into place. And I really see that, you know, there were two key parts of AFWorks that were born at that time. And that was this sort of cultural change side of the house, the AFWorks Spark initiatives. And then it's the, uh, how do we get funding to small businesses to work with the Air Force? So in those first couple of years, those were the two big things that got started. And uh, then the third thing that got born a couple of years later was the prime initiatives. How do we seed new market directions? And so AFWorks was born out of this desire to change the culture and direction of the Air Force. And we got lucky to experiment with what tools or opportunities do we have and what are the incentives we have to drive behavior change inside the military. What is it like to be a founder or entrepreneur inside government? That's a pretty unusual experience and setup. Yeah. Uh, it was a very different role to uh, have to think and act strategically, but also execute tactically. Um, it was a, a lucky blessing and opportunity to work with um, the other captains, the other colonels in our space and say, hey, we're actually going to um, say, hey, here's a key problem set that we want to help facilitate change on. Let's take the SBIR program. And say we want to defense off, uh, they had a $900 million budget at the time. We want to defense off $10 million to try and shift um, how those awards were done. Normally, at that time, awards were done within a 6 to 12-month period, and it was a 25 to 50-page white paper. We said we'd like to try and do a 15-page slide deck and get awards out within a three-month time period. Um, it's a small experiment. They're like, okay, sure, you're a different organization. We've built some trust and rapport. Go ahead and try that. Sorry to interrupt. I feel like slide decks aren't even in the vocabulary of like many government agencies or or departments. No, I was going to say memo, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, no one's used to like saying, how do we make a decision off a 15 page slide deck, right? Like that's, we're used to those briefing memos and those deep position papers, right? And how do you actually make meaningful decisions off of that. These are, those are the challenges that I think a lot of people were, were facing of like, how can you do that? 
Um, but what we saw in, in the space was it was actually super effective. Um, a lot of companies were excited to engage with the Air Force under this manner. And a lot of airmen were excited to say, hey, we can actually bring funding to go solve the problem I'm facing today. And I'm really excited about that. So being an entrepreneur inside the Air Force was about designing, hey, what's an incentive that we want to change? How do I then take that problem and try an initial prototype project? How do I try a minimum viable product to go see, hey, does this work? Um, but we also ran into a lot of resistance. Uh, it was because Afworks was based out of the Pentagon and we had the top cover of a four-star that within a large bureaucratic organization, uh, we were able to drive some things forward. Uh, there were a lot of uh, internal fights and discussions around how do we scale some of these things? How do we actually resource them? And how do we do that in a manner that changes our current funding cycle, which is still on a two to three year basis? How are we changing those decisions to be done within a six to 18 month basis? And I'd argue that that culture change is still happening internal to the Air Force. And um, what all we got to do is help, we help shift the conversation to get started down that direction and really show people that as an, as an entrepreneur, you do have the power to shift the direction of a, a problem set. If you're willing to take ownership of it, if you're willing to get connected to the right champion, uh, make sure you're engaged with legal and public affairs as well. And you're engaged with, hey, what's the long-term funding source for this opportunity? Like talk to those true customers and the end users inside the military because the customers and end users are different. And I'm just curious, um, what is different or unique about how the Air Force specifically invests in small businesses? I mean, there's so many innovation efforts. Do you feel like you have a niche and do you feel like that's well understood by other agencies and other innovation efforts across government? Yeah. So one of the biggest things that we got to do uh, was create the open topic process. Um, so the Air Force open topic process leverages the small business innovation research funds and the small business technology transfer funds, SBIR and STTR. And what we did is we created a open pathway for any company to engage and pitch the Air Force saying, hey, we have an idea. And we would like to work with the Air Force on this potential capability, whether it was a new piece of software or an additive manufacturing capability that made it easier to change aircraft tires. Uh, a company could come in and say that we have this technology on the commercial side. We want to jump in and apply it to what the Air Force is doing. And what we did is at the time, it was, um, I'll share what it is now. It's a $75,000 initial three-month contract to do that customer discovery and feasibility study. And that follows on with a $1.25 million prototype project. That is a 12-month prototype project. And then that can scale to a 3 to $15 million strategic financing contract. And the goal of this effort was to build a pipeline of opportunity where we had a large funnel of ideas coming through. Those funnels, um, those ideas would then break down to who can find a stakeholder, what's that prototype project, and those were that phase two million dollar efforts that said, hey, we have a stakeholder, let's see if this is actually something that improves warfighter capability. And out of those, right, some of those will scale, um, they get the funding long term uh, without having to go through the Stratify process, but the Stratify process said, hey, we want to bridge a capability long term. How are we building the next generation of hybrid aircraft? 
what does that look like? So the Air Force then can invest $30 million into that effort and bring private capital to the table to help incentivize how we change the direction of where the Air Force is headed. And so the open topic process actually got codified into law by Congress, um, I think two years ago now. And uh, it was an effort, or sorry, the 2022 NDAA. Uh, it was an effort to now have an open topic by both the Army and the Navy. And we're starting to see some of those results. Um, I don't think that we're fully there yet. Those aren't truly open topics we've seen. Uh, but I think that we are getting there, right? What XX Search is doing is amazing. I think the Navy's starting to head down this direction. They just said their open topic process, but it was very focused. Uh, but we're starting to see some change uh, around the whole DOD enterprise of saying, hey, we can take this open topic SBIR and STTR programs and use that as a vehicle to shift how our capability development is happening. And we can have a quicker tie-in to the long-term funding process by saying, we're going to bring in this capital and have a dedicated timeline for those strategic capabilities to be funded. And just so I understand correctly, the w- the way in which open topic on a broad scale differs from more traditional approaches is that more traditional approaches have like specific RFPs for, for specific, you know, sort of like uses or problems or, or, you know, whatever specifications and open topic is kind of like free for all, any proposal you want to put out there. Is that, am I like characterizing that correctly in broad strokes? A hundred percent. The, the whole paradigm was shifted. And the reason for that was that R&D funding in the 40s, 50s, and 60s was primarily led by governments. Um, it is was the U.S. government leading R&D funding, and that's where new technologies were being developed. So then we were asking for people to jump in and say, hey, what are you developing along these key areas? How do we pull the brightest minds into what's happening with where government's driving research? But that paradigm has completely shifted. Now there's $500 billion of funding going to research and development that's happening from commercial entities and organizations. Capitalism has been super effective, and now commercial entities are driving the future of technology. Whether that happens in the AI ML space, you're seeing that with large language models, you're seeing that with additive manufacturing and people printing houses with concrete structures, Uh, you're seeing that happening in being able to 3D print rocket fuel. Um, so it's happening all across the board in the commercial space, and the government is doing about a hundred billion dollars of R and D a year. So how do now that this paradigm has shifted, how do we change this conversation to say what innovation is happening with small businesses around the U.S. and around the world? How do we intake that innovation and say where can it be applied into how the government is doing business? Natalia mentioned that there are a bunch of different innovation initiatives across across government, but I would say particularly around defense, homeland, intel, you know, the Defense Innovation Unit, Incutel, et cetera. Do the, do the different entities, obviously they serve different, you know, kind of communities and departments and agencies, but um, would you say that there are, they're also representative of different philosophies about how government should interact with the private sector or small business or startups? Like, is there, are there philosophical and ideological differences in how they approach the cultivation of these types of relationships that would be helpful for people on the outside to understand? 
Yeah, that's a, a great question. And I would love to put some context around that. Uh, the DOD is about 3 million people. And if you think about that, the, that is, um, the largest organ, the largest company and organization in the world. Now, if you break down the DOD, there's a subset with the Navy, the Marines, the Army, the Air Force, the Space Force. All of those organizations have a distinct culture. They have different ways of approaching problems. The part of the reason, Natalia, going back to your earlier question of why was the Air Force so successful in doing things a little bit differently is our culture allows for ideas to come from different ranks and allows for the merit of an idea to speak over the um, the rank of the individual. In some of our other services, rank is way more important than the idea. And that is through our tradition and culture of how that organization has grown up. But it is still important for innovation to happen, for modernization to happen in those organizations. So the culture of an innovation organization and a service outside of the Air Force is and needs to be very different than what the Air Force is doing with AFWORKS and then what the Army is doing with Army Futures Command and Navy is doing with Naval X. The problem sets are different. The way our research labs are structured are different. The way the program offices that are in charge of capability deployment are different. And so it's important for each service within this large $3 million, $3 million person organization to have different pathways that are successful for uh, each organization. I think there's one key theme, though, that is occurring throughout, two key themes that are occurring throughout engaging in all of these organizations. One, I truly see a focus on dual-use technology, so technology that is both successfully selling and growing in the commercial space, and then how do you apply that technology within the Department of Defense or government at large? And this might be as simple as how are we using a financial accounting software on the commercial side, and how does that then apply into how the DOD is doing fiscal manage- financial management? That is something that is, uh, we often say, hey, we're, we could say we're a special snowflake. The DOD is so big. We have everything done our own way. I'd argue that no, uh, there are commercial entities and organizations that are just as complex as we are. Uh, you can take a look at Amazon, Facebook, and these other large organizations. They have complex problem sets around financial management. Um, and we do too. So how do we use the best in breed software or tools to give our airmen a pro- um, the, prob- the tool set to address problems in financial management? And we have to be able to leverage commercial software and commercial tool and hardware into the Department of Defense. So I truly see dual use happening across all of the DoD innovation organizations. Uh, and there's a small caveat to that. I think about 2% of what we do the things that go boom are the things that the DOD needs to keep investing in. And that's those are things that are military specific, but I'd argue everything else from the materials that go into hypersonics to the latest AIML software to how we're doing financial management, there's a commercial equivalent somewhere out there. And there, we can pull that into the DOD. You were starting to talk a little bit about the technologies um that are becoming more of a focus in government and defense. I'm curious, what are these general trends that you're seeing in government defense tech focused startups 
And what does it actually tell us about current national security challenges? Um, and anything else that you think is really pushing or related to these trends? Yeah, uh, I th- the super interesting thing about the, the DOD space is we've identified a critical and emerging technologies list. And uh, that is advanced computing, advanced engineering materials, uh, advanced gas turbine engine materials, advanced manufacturing, network sensing and signature management. And I can keep going. It lists AI, communications, directed energy, human machine interfaces, hypersonics. Um, there's the whole host of these, and it breaks down inside of these critical tech areas. Um, what do we want to see change within this space? And the DOD is really recognizing that they play a part in helping drive the innovation in this space and can be a consistent funding source for capabilities. But we're also recognizing that the private capital markets also have a role to play here. The VC community has a role to play in what technologies are getting funded in these areas. And over the last decade or so, we've seen a lot of funding go to software as a service companies and less funding go to these deep tech verticals of what's happening with directed energy. And there's not as much venture funding for directed energy as there is for software as a service opportunities, because the return multiple that happens for software as a service is going to be a lot higher than it is for a hardware or deep tech focused company. And sometimes those the timelines of those efforts are also vastly different. A return on a deep tech company might take seven to 10 years versus a return on a SaaS company could happen in three to seven years, uh, depending on funding rounds and stages. Uh, so what we're seeing is the DOD really looking at how are we looking at the, the DOD is really looking at what is happening in the deep tech space and how are we seeding that market and creating opportunities for private capital, to, private capital to come in and play at the same time of how do we provide consistent funding regardless of what the economy is doing. So we want to make sure we're creating a market for autonomous technologies. And we're seeing that happen with the autonomy prime effort that the Air Force is leading. We're seeding the market for flying taxis. Like we're receiving the market for electronic vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. How are we helping the battery tech get along? How are we helping the regulations of the FAA be developed? How are we making sure that the technology can actually pick up and transport something and move it to another place safely? There's a lot of military applications of that, but it's also the future of transportation. And it we're seeding that market by saying, hey, we're going to provide funding up front using taxpayer dollars. And these taxpayer dollars are going to either some of these core critical components of that technology, but also the companies that are putting that all together and saying, we can develop a military capability based off of this, that will also see the commercial market for how do you uh, get something transported within New York within 25 minutes and get through some of the current gridlock that we have. It's interesting to hear you mention that you know, there hasn't historically been as much private capital directed toward these capital intensive, deep tech, hardware focused uh, ventures versus, you know, software, SaaS, etc. And I think I agree with you on that point. I will say, though, it feels to me like in the last couple of years, there has been a serious uptick in new venture firms that are focused on dual use technology and defense tech. 
such that I now feel like every week I hear about a new one. And I'm curious what you make of that. Seems like maybe overall it's a good thing, but at what point are there too many? Do you think there's enough deal flow? Are they differentiated enough? Like, what do you, what do you make of that trend? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Uh, we also have one. We have Outpost Ventures, which is focused as a, a dual-use tech fund. And uh, I feel really lucky to be a part of this conversation because uh, five or six years ago now, when we started building out AFWorks, there were maybe one or two uh, firms that were saying, hey, we're dual-use focused. And so as you said now, right, that I can name 15 to 20 firms that say, hey, we're completely focused on dual-use. We want to drive that technology forward. Um, I think people are recognizing that there's a shift in the way the government is approaching funding these technologies, but I don't think that shift is big enough yet. I think the Air Force and AFWorks through the Stratify program are really creating pathways for that to happen, but I don't see that happening across the rest of the DOD yet. The Army Catalyst program is a step in that direction, but they're focused on that tech transition to primes. How do we actually help drive that growth for companies so we're actually building more mid-tier companies that can compete in this space and win contracts? Uh, for example, the Air Force made the announcement for the next blended wing body aircraft. Uh, that went to a startup, but that startup was also partnered with a large prime. And uh, that transformation in this space is, hey, we're seeing an exit opportunity for a company. They got a long-term contract. They're a mid-tier prime. Uh, they're on a pathway for potentially hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue. Um, the VC firms that are out there are going to continue looking for these opportunities. Uh, I think there are enough problems and there is enough deal flow in the space. The DOD is the fifth largest line item on the U.S. government budget. And that money has to be spent and that is spent on capability development. And we're starting to see a shift in how DOD at large is talking about uh, what the defense industrial base is doing. We can't keep the consolidation happening um, in this space, right? Just this week, BAE Systems announced the purchase of Ball Aerospace. Uh, that is the primes consolidating again. And so how do we create more new entrants for the space market? And having space-focused dual-use VCs uh, will allow for us to have more startups that can be successful in the space. And government funding here, because space is a super capital-intensive market, uh, will allow for those companies to grow and scale a little bit further than they might have if they were purely venture-funded alone. And I think we're what we're seeing through this dual-use space is we need to stay focused on the fundamentals. These companies have to still be generating revenue. Um, we have to see that these companies actually have a pathway to transition. Government funding alone or government contracts alone for these companies are are not going to be a long-term success. Just getting a SBIR phase two uh, does not mean a company is investable on the VC side. A company should also have commercial contracts in place. They should be turning revenue. And I'm a firm believer in creating paths to profitability early in the process. So how are you generating a profit early in that process and not just burning through cash? Um, those are going to be the companies that are going to be successful and be able to weather the tough times. Speaking of turning cash and just, I think, the immense effort that it takes for founders to not only put together a company, 
then put together a product that is sellable, and then also see a company through the different phases of growth. I mean, you yourself are a multi-time founder, and I'm so curious to understand your experience as even a second and third time founder and maybe some of your, you know, your main insights as you've continued to grow through your founder journey. Yeah. Uh, I, my first company was in 2014 and I really learned what it meant to create a minimum viable product. And uh, that startup failed, um, but I, I learned a lot in that process. And, uh, you know, the second company I built, we were able to get to an MVP and start selling within two weeks and, uh, start turning a, a product, like the product and start selling it. Um, then I realized, Hey, the market wasn't big enough for that. Like it was, we got there, we started selling, we started making a little bit of money, but there wasn't a long-term game or effort there. Uh, but I, what I got to learn and really understand is, um, you truly have to, design and figure out your product market fit and figure that out as soon as possible. Um, you have to be talking to customers constantly and you have to be building something that people want to purchase and use long-term. So the more that we can use that and um, direct a, hey, as you're building a startup, how are we meeting the customer's needs? That, that needs to be your pure focus. And how are you designing a the incentives for a market to be shaped was something that I learned during my time at AffWorks. Uh, but that really came in understanding my time as an entrepreneur that if we have the right incentives for startups to want to work with the DOD, we also have the right uh, incentives for military members to work with those businesses. We need that customer connection. And now we need a reason for the large-scale bureaucratic organization to change and listen to that potential capability development. And so I'd say my skills as I got to learn as an entrepreneur um, really fed into my time in the military. And they really are feeding into my time now at the Outposts and what we're doing with Outpost Ventures as well. And how do we identify the right com companies that can grow and scale in the defense space? Uh, we still do a lot of education on the government side of here's what you do with a phase three direct award vehicle. Here's how we can leverage a multiple award IDIQ. Here's how you take another transaction and go from a, a prototype production to um, how you do an OT prototype to a OT production contract. Uh, those are, those are pathways that we're still educating people on. And so I'd say my time as an entrepreneur and learning how to use these contract vehicles and how to get them for our, our company has been super helpful in how we teach other companies how to do that as well. That's super helpful, super interesting, Joey. Um, we wa I want to ask you a handful of rapid fire questions. And by that, I mean, you know, you don't have to answer with one word, but maybe like a sentence or two. Uh, but don't think too hard about it. Um, and maybe Natalia and I can go back and forth a little bit on these, but these are a bunch of things that I have been wondering about this space for a long time. I'm really curious for your take. The first one is what's the one thing that you think the DOD is not spending enough money on something that they should be funding that they really aren't. That's their talent pipeline. And how do we 
how are we tracking the skill sets our people have and uh, really transforming uh, how we use talent like this the reserve active duty model uh, i don't think is the future i think what the space force is doing with the full-time and part-time model is the future what is most misunderstood about government contracting that the there are enough tools in the tool belt to be able to do things in interesting ways um, and that it requires education of the contracting team and leadership and the companies uh, that we have all the tool belt like we're not restricted by congress um, i think that with CSOs, OTs, FAR-based efforts, um, there are multiple ways to get after effective and interesting contract pathways. Uh, and it is up to the government internally to be able to execute on those timelines. And you can put a contract in place within 90 days. It is 100% possible. It is 100% legal. And we have all the tools in the tool belt to do it. And what's the number one piece of advice or wisdom you'd give to a founder of a startup who's thinking about going after government or DOD contracts? I'd say the first thing that you should be trying is understanding who your customer is and building contract pathways that can scale within that organization. You have to unpack that. What does that mean? Yeah. So talk to your end users. And like say, are you actually delivering a capability that is significantly better than what they can do today? And on the uh, end user side, they're not the people who can buy the technology. There is a second entity or organization involved that is the customer that says, hey, we're the buying authority for this capability. How do you get them involved in that conversation to say, is this a capability we're actually willing to invest in over the next few years? Is this a priority? for the organization at large. So if we're actually going to um, change the way that we're uh, doing financial management, are they are they already committed to a software pathway or direction? Have they already purchased a pipeline and pathway at the customer level? This hasn't gotten down to the end user or are they still looking for solutions and trying to test them? So you need to get in early to those conversations, see where those stakeholders are at. And, uh, or uh, if you're in early, right, if you have a, a novel way to, uh, to do intelligence analysis and collect the data together on the edge, um, can you get that story told up to the funding organization? So this way you have an advocate down at the end user level who can now champion this story and say, hey, here's the capability development that we get better intelligence analysis on the edge by using this piece of software or putting this hardware in place downrange that we're, we're going to be 14 times more effective at identifying where our targets are or what's happening in this space. You have to both engage the end users and the customers and then educate them on, well, if you want to get on contract, uh, here are the different pathways or funding opportunities we can pursue. Joey, someone, as someone who is personally selling into governments right now, I mean, I think Nothing is truer that there is a difference between the buying authority and the end user. I'm just curious on your thought around this idea of pulling and generating data with your end user, right? So then you can make the case to the buying authority. 
I don't know if it, it's that easy to generate that data. And if that end user is equipped all the time to be able to say, yep, like, let's just, you know, set this up, you see if it works, generate the data, then we can take it back. Like, you know, I personally have felt a lot of, um, there's like, I feel like there's more sticky points there to actually get that to that path. And so I'm just curious if you have any advice on working with end users, like truly working with them so you can do the prototyping that you would need to do. Yeah, this is where I'm a huge advocate of the SBIR and STTR programs because there are funding pathways that are specifically focused on go do a prototype, go validate that data with the end user, and that's how you build your use case. Um, so that's one of the most amazing things about a $75,000 contract to go do customer discovery feasibility study and getting paid to engage with the government. And then you have a prototype project where you're getting a million dollars, 1.25 to $1.8 million over a 12-month period to go out and execute with them, collect that data. You're on contract to do so. And now that's how you build your case for those next steps. Uh, that is one of the pathways. Uh, I am biased towards this because of the open topic process and helping build it. Uh, but it is available to any small business that is out there. Uh, in addition to that, right, there's a lot of demonstration events. And there's a lot more challenges that are popping up all across the government space to say, hey, here's a potential capability that we need and allowing for more opportunities for startups to pitch what their ideas are and see what's in the art if possible. Uh, we could do a whole podcast just specifically on these different contract types and vehicles. Um, I'm trying to keep that short and focused. Well, we'll have to have you back for one of those deep dives sometime. And I'm sure you'll have a lot of eager founders listening to this who are going to look up some of the other content that you've put out um, at the Outpost and otherwise on on navigating government contracts, because it is certainly challenging. Joey, thank you for joining us. Um, we're going to transition now to our final segment where we each share something that we are following right now. Um, I uh, will go first. I have been following this Russian robotic spacecraft that crashed on the moon. It was headed to the moon um, uh, to do a landing on the close to the South Pole, I believe. Um, and then uh, there was some sort of incident in which it lost, in which uh, the Russian space agency lost contact with the vehicle and it crashed. I think what was interesting to me in following this is. A, I was surprised to hear that the Russian space program is so active right now, and it seems like um, Putin has a lot of other things on his hands these days. And also, I was surprised to learn that the U.S. and Russia continue to collaborate quite actively on the International Space Station um, when otherwise, you know, diplomatic relations um, are essentially nil. So um, to me, that was a really sort of interesting flashpoint that um, that sort of revealed these other dynamics happening in what feels like both figuratively and maybe in a sense, literally a, a parallel universe. Um, so anyway, Natalia, what are you following this week? Quite a different vein of what I'm following, but um, I hadn't been to the theaters in years since pre-COVID and I just went and did the whole Barbie Oppenheimer thing, everything that's a meme on the internet today. And particularly around the Barbie movie, I have been following a lot of the literature and conversation around it. And I was kind of taken back of the genius of the Mattel CEO 
apparently, you know, he's sort of come in and he has said, let's think about everything that we sell as a franchise. And we are now an, essentially an entertainment company. And we are going to revive all of these individual franchises that we have. And these franchises not only speak to, you know, the younger generation of today, but you're also capturing all of us and the generation even above us as well. And I think Barbie is actually the very first step in a bunch of new franchise entertainment lines that they're going to be launching. And the crazy thing about it is it's not just even about the movie. I mean, just think about the amount of marketing and just general information and advertising infiltration you see in your own feeds that are related to this Mattel movie. So I'm excited to see a little bit of how he comes and changes things up and how that delivers over the next five to 10 years. Joey, have, what really have you cool. been, yeah. What have you been following? Um, I have been really interested in the India U S summit that happened a few weeks ago and the outcomes of the Indus X efforts. Uh, so I'm super curious to see like what the future of international partnerships looks like as you know, we two democracies are trying to figure out how do we work together how do we facilitate a balance of technology transfer, but also how do you build contracts and opportunities across international lines uh, has been a big thing on my mind. Um, so that's something I've been thinking about. And I also saying, think how with that... India running the G20 this year, like that's very, very top of mind. Yeah. And how do we take a look at like, what is a true partnership between India and US continue to look like? Um, there's a lot of uh, individuals that are doing amazing things around, around both sides, but what are the biggest Indian tech companies that are selling into the U.S. and what are the you know dual-use companies in the U.S. that it can sell into India's defense apparatus as well? So TBD, um, we'll find out maybe in a few years where that goes. And with that, thank you for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative and is a proud member of the DSR Network. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find the show. You can follow me online at Z Weinberg, follow, follow Natalia at Natalia Tucker, and Joey at Joey Aurora. If you're a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. And with that, join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy.